Okay, hey, welcome. My name is Dennis Stevens. Thank you for joining us at first edition of My Friend Voldemort. Why should you listen to this podcast? Who am I? I'm Dennis. I'm a visual artist. I live in the Hudson Valley of New York. And this content stream called My Friend Voldemort is built upon about 20 years of work. My work as a philosopher and a thinker and a critic really began in the early 2000s when I was living in Silicon Valley and, and I was working in the university in an art department. And I began to write about the hybrid intersections of art, craft, and design, where these different ideas and theories and ways of knowing about being in the world and expressing oneself all converge. And there's really, in that, there's a convergence of values, and those values conflict. And sometimes they don't align, and people misunderstand each other. So that was really kind of the beginning of understanding the microcosm of communities and why communities disagree and don't really align with one another. And in all of this, I was pursuing a master's degree in writing, and I became somewhat of a well-known blogger, and I got to travel internationally and got to see different communities and it really became somewhat of a celebrity. And then as that progressed, I went on and started pursuing my doctorate in 2006 in New York at Teachers College at Columbia University. And that began to spawn new ideas related to the political. So if we're thinking about the art, craft, and design communities as in, in the convergence of values, I began to look at the American political landscape as the macrocosm of disagreement and conflict. So what that led to in 2008 is I pitched to CNN for the first time a concept for a new kind of program that would attempt to mediate the ideological divide between Fox News and MSNBC. And over the years, I've pitched a lot of iterations of this idea with no success because I've been blocked by various CEOs and C-suite leaders and, and various people up and down the chain of command who really didn't see the value. But also, quite realistically, the news business, as it is built, has to do with the need to sell ads. The news business is not committed to the public discourse. The news business is committed to gaining value for shareholders. And value for shareholders is gained by selling advertising. That's how the media business makes money. So if you're talking about really this idea of repairing the public discourse, there becomes this bigger question, well, whose job is that? Because there used to be this thing called the fairness doctrine, but that was deleted. There's no requirement anymore for anybody to be fair about anything. So given this big dose of dead-end reality, you may ask the question, Hey, Dennis, why are you trying to change the world? What's your deal? Well, I can tell you a little story about how I grew up. I grew up in South Carolina. My parents were divorced when I was eight years old, and I was caught in between their battles, their 
disagreements, their quarrels, and I was encouraged to take sides, but I never did. What I realized just recently in therapy is that I've been trying to resolve those conflicts, is those conflicts had to do with the fact that I had emotionally immature parents. And now today, as I look around the American political landscape, I understand that our conflicts in our politics have to do with emotionally immature leaders and an emotionally immature American public. The genesis of this idea, of this concept of my friend Voldemort, is a very relevant one to news in the public interest. It's a very relevant one to American public discourse. So despite all the pain and frustration that I went through throughout my life, I think there's a benefit in it. And that's why I'm bringing this forward, for the betterment of an America I love. Thanks for joining me. What we're going to talk about today is the creation and exchange of meaning in the news as it relates to politics. And there's a sense in which there's a certain tension when we think about the state of American public discourse between the news in the public interest and news as entertainment. So what I'm offering here builds upon Neil Postman's work in Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, if you haven't read that book, it's a book written in 1985 by Neil Postman, who was a critic, a writer, a communications theorist. He was at NYU. He headed up a program called Media Ecology, and interestingly, he lived in Flushing, New York at the time, which is where I lived from 2006 to 2010 when I was completing my doctorate of education in art and art education, the college teaching of art at Teachers College Columbia University. So some of this work builds on what Postman has said, and it builds on the work that I did in my dissertation. So Postman's thesis in Amusing Ourselves to Death is this idea that by expressing ourselves through the visual, such as television, it reduces our politics, our news, and our history and other very serious topics to entertainment. And Postman's concern at the time was that culture would decline if people became an audience and their public business became what he termed a vaudeville act. You know, if we think about that and this question of American public discourse and the current state of it and how news in the public interest relates to news as entertainment, you can see that we have a lot of vaudeville acts going on. As Postman was concerned and as I am concerned today, there's a problem that serious and rational public conversation about what is best for America in all its iterations has become problematic because we can't have mature conversations, it seems, as mature adults anymore. What's the problem? Well, this builds on Postman. Human minds are not unanimous in understanding the world, and there's a divergence of meaning among many different cultures, including the cultures of the left and the cultures of the political right in the United States, and there are many communication tools beyond speech that enable us to communicate with one another. And when every new communication medium emerges, such as the internet, these new mediums of expression create opportunities for new modes of discourse. So what we've done is ran to our corners and we stay in our corners and we hide from one another and feel really good about what it is that we believe and think and value the most. And those things don't converge anymore. In this program, when I talk about my friend Voldemort, I'm not referring to any specific person, but I am building upon the ways in which right-wing politicians have been spoken about from the left, that they are the forces of darkness. And I don't really believe that, but as I look around, I'm not talking about any specific person, but I do see right-wing politicians performing as actors. So you think about when Jon Stewart went on to Crossfire and he insulted Tucker Carlson. Now, this is theater. I mean, it's, it's it obvious. Is, no, no, it is. How old are you? 35. And you wear a bow tie. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. So I 
And he said at that specific moment, we need what you do, but what you're doing here is theater when what we need is discourse. You know, nothing's really changed. Politics is theater because news is entertainment. So today what I want to do is just begin to run through a few examples of recent news stories in no particular order and talk about them through the lens of my friend Voldemort to reestablish or at least begin the work on reestablishing public discourse. Now this work owes a debt to Neil Postman and also owns a debt to Mosher McLuhan because they established media studies as it exists today. You know, a lot has changed, of course, and we need to update that whole notion, but they saw it coming. There's a lot more of my own personal story to convey in all this. If you want to know more about me, what I'm doing, how this came to be, where this is coming from, the history, it's 20 years of history leading up to it. You can head over to myfriendvoldemort.com, join the site, join the conversation. You can become a free member. Consider becoming a subscribing member where you'll get much more in-depth, behind-the-scenes context to the work that I'm doing, but I look forward to talking to you over there, and with no further ado, do let's get started thanks for joining me welcome to my friend Voldemort in order to lay the groundwork for our conversation in this episode I want to begin with one of the top news stories right now the FBI and the Department of Justice search of President Trump's West Palm Beach Mar-a-Lago property last week Obviously, there's been a lot of widespread assertions by the American political right that this was an act of political retribution and the weaponization of the Department of Justice. And then the Sunday, August 14th, you have the representative from the White House, the press secretary, going on to ABC's This Week, co-anchor Jonathan Carl, and speaking to him about how the Republicans have accused the Biden administration specifically of politicizing the FBI and the Department of Justice. And she's asserting that's simply not true. We're not politicizing. This isn't about politicizing. And the current president's predecessor, Donald Trump, appointed the FBI director. So she's making that point. So as an aside from this, I just want to take a moment and talk about the broader project of my friend Voldemort, because there's plenty of hypocrisy and outrage here. If you take a left-leaning position and you evaluate what the right wing is doing and you can get really upset about it and rant and rave and go on as most podcasts on the right and the left do. That's not my goal here. Because I'm not here to feed the hypocrisy machine. There's plenty of hypocrisy to go around depending upon your perspective. And what I want to point to is that on one level, these actors, entertainers, and performers in this idea of news as entertainment, they're doing what they do. And I, as a person looking at this, accept that. But I do want to talk about the broader implications of how the political right thinks is like the public and, and the way that they think and the what and why they think the way that they do. And I want to stay focused on the broader creation and exchange of meaning that occurs in the news cycle and the implications of that as it affects an audience, the people of the United States. Because actors, performers, and entertainers say what resonates with their audience. Now, I could say what resonates with a left-leaning audience and feed into the hypocrisy and do news as entertainment, but that's not what I aim to do. What the right is doing with respect to news as entertainment is a part of the problem. The people believe what they believe as they do. America is a free country. People are always going to believe right-leaning things. People are always going to believe left-leaning things. That is never going to be resolved. But here, I want to highlight what I'm doing and describe how it's different because no one on the left or the right, not a single commentator in the public sphere, at least as I am aware, can speak with any sympathy in the way in which I'm about to do. 
There's a difference between how the left and the right understand and create meaning, and they have different values that they believe are important. And, and that's where we need to stand. And that's sort of uncomfortable place to stand. It's like, I don't understand this person, therefore they must be a jerk. But that's really a kind of a simple, you're sort of taking the easy way out, I think. And, and that's part of the problem, right? And then we have news as entertainment in our face telling us what you believe is right, and can you believe the hypocrisy of it all? So at the same time on the right, there are inherent connotations about how the world works. So in what they're saying as actors, performers, and entertainers, that there's these connotations that are that lie beneath what is being said. And it's namely like Democrats are corrupt. They are failing America. And the, there's only one solution, and that's for Republicans to be in charge forever. And of course, that's nonsense because that's not how America works. If, we're, if we have a representative republic and we function as a democracy. The Republicans aren't going to win forever. And politics is not a battle of the forces of light versus the forces of darkness. And that's really what I aim to dig into here. So we'll start with a story about the Trump investigation, and then I'm going to elaborate on it. Because what is being said by these entertainers is simply untrue in terms of the, the connotative. The outrage machine wins because my friend Voldemort is doing entertainment rather than working towards what is actually in the public's interest. So what is actually in the public's interest? Public's interest is to understand reality. What is reality? So here's a novel reality that you'll never hear a entertainer, performer, or actor in news as it relates to politics say. Democrats will never win and run the country unopposed forever. Republicans will never win and run the country unopposed forever. The ideals of both parties will never be carried out in purity. There will always be this tension. There will always be a war of extermination that will never be won. That's America. That's the reality that we need to contend with. Law enforcement at the highest levels of government, whether it's the DOJ, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and now even the IRS have been weaponized to target the political opponents of the Uniparty, the permanent Washington, and the Biden regime. So that was Tulsi Gabbard, August 12th on Fox News, Tucker Carlson Tonight's show. The sub-headline of the article says that the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid changed the country that we grew up in. Tulsi is a former Democratic lawmaker who, in this case, is calling out the Mar-a-Lago raid. I find her views to be very confusing as a person who understands the ideology of the left and the right. She claims to be a Democrat, but she stands very firmly uh, on conservative positions around the culture war. I really don't understand how she can call herself a Democrat. Nonetheless, what we understand her as a person who is advocating a position. So let's unpack that. She's very clearly stating that law enforcement has been infiltrated by Democratic leadership in some way, that the DOJ, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the IRS are all working against the Republican Party. And her evidence is the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Granted, there was a search warrant. We know what that search warrant says. I'm not sure she saw it. I'm not sure how she feels about it. But what this feels like to me is one of those attempts to advocate a conspiracy theory. Of course, the Republican Party is not going to go away. It's not going to be destroyed by the Uniparty, which she's suggesting is the Democratic Party is going to is aiming to destroy the Republican Party. And somehow the Democrats are going to take over and they're going to rule. Uh, I'm not sure how that all plays out in her narrative. 
again, the problem that we should have is not that people think this way, but she's suggesting that there is a conspiracy afoot without really any evidence at all except her own attitudes, beliefs, values, perception, and, and a persuasive argument that really prompt people to find evidence where there is none. So I'd like to shift gears now from a story wherein there is no evidence and the human mind fills in the gaps to a story wherein there's evidence and the human mind fills in the gaps. And what I'm referring to is John Paul Mac Isaac, the presumably innocent laptop repairman who has got a lot of mileage on Fox News with this story that we would know in the media as the laptop from hell, which is Hunter Biden's laptop. And the question remains how he came into possession of it. He can explain that story quite clearly. The FBI has possession of the laptop. They're doing an investigation. This is a very difficult story to understand because it's dependent upon your attitudes and beliefs and values about your trust or distrust in the U.S. government. And the fact of the matter is, is when these kinds of stories involve the U.S. intelligence apparatus, there is certain information that we don't have access to. So there's a question about your trust or distrust in the U.S. government and how you're able to stand in mystery, doubt, and uncertainty without reaching for fact or reason, or you draw your own conclusions about what's going on. John Paul, what do you think about the institutions of the United States government. I, I would imagine you have a perspective now that is informed by some of the stuff that you saw on the laptop, but also now the experience that you've endured in the wake of exposing what was on the laptop. You have just labeled or told me that numerous government institutions from state unemployment offices to the IRS to the FBI have all taken, let's put it this way, a very clear position mm -hmm. when it comes to you. Yeah. What do you think of the institutions of the United States of America? Well, call, call it a na naive repairman's point of view, but I think that sometimes you got to let things fail before you can have the opportunity to fix them. And I think that this is a case for that. Uh, I believe in the FBI. I didn't trust the FBI. The FBI is broken. They demonstrated that. But I still believe that the system is there for a purpose and it's the right course of action. It was the right decision. I didn't want to go to the press. I didn't want to go to media because I didn't feel like that was what had to be done. That wasn't the proper channel. If the FBI had done their job, I would have still had my business. I know The world would never have known I existed if the FBI had done their job right. The caveat here, of course, is that John Paul Mac Isaac signed a book deal with Simon & Schuster, and he's appeared numerous times on Fox News, and presumably his life has been changed forever as his book called American Justice Outlines. So he either wants to be in the shadows or he wants to be in the spotlight. He seems a little conflicted about that. That's his life. But what I want to turn to now, what he represents in a visually rhetorical sense. If we pay close attention to how he presents himself, he is a gentleman who has Scottish-American heritage, and he wears a military beret. And this military beret is something that he is obviously proud of. It represents a Scottish-American heritage, and it's also representative of the Scottish army. So there's a sense in which he's representing himself in this paramilitary sense, because the hat is representative of the Scottish army, and specifically the Rural Regiment of Scotland. And we can imagine how certain American patriots and certain American nationalists might connect with 
the story that he's telling about the disrespect that he's received from the left with regard to his heritage and identity. What is sitting on top of your head? <laughs> what is the hat? Uh, the, the hat generates liberal tears. Um, so I, it's a ball moral. It's like a beret with a pom-pom. It has my family's crest. I have a small collection of them. And I have an ugly head, and it's a good way to cover it. Plus, I, I'm visually impaired. Right. I walk into low-hanging branches, stop signs, uh, countertops. So it's nice to have some good, like a bumper here to kind of <laughs> stop that from doing damage. Uh, I always wear the hat. I'm, I get sunburned. I'm an albino. So I get burned through brick walls if I'm not careful. Wow. And so I wear the hat a lot. When everything hit the fan in October 14 of 2020, uh, a lot of the hate mail that I was receiving, a lot of the death threats, a lot of the, the anti-pro-assumption Russian disinformation emails always seemed to kind of have a theme, that a common theme. And, and that was, uh, you know, Putin thanks you for your service and your hat is stupid. Or that hat is something ugly, and, and it's uh, and I got a kick out of that because it kind of told me, it gave me a little insight to these people that they cared more about the hat than about the truth. And then I realized that the hat's really triggering a lot of these people. And then I decided to uh, why why stop a good thing. How good is the Democratic Party at using the tools of rhetoric, the tools of the persuasive argument, and the tools of visual rhetoric to communicate the core of their ideals as it relates to winning elections? I don't think they're very good. I don't think they're very up to date. And I think they're very much in the dark about how sophisticated rhetoric and visual rhetoric is in the 21st century. And what I want to point to is a couple problems that we're going to run into real soon. And it's something that the American public is somewhat familiar with, but really doesn't talk about a lot. And that is how AI and big data and tools like the former Cambridge Analytica are used to transform public discourse. Because it's becoming more and more difficult to advance public discourse because political operatives, people working behind the scenes, and and I guess here would be appropriate place to insert my conspiracy theory warning. Like this could go down a rabbit hole to conspiracy very quickly, but it's clear to me from where I stand and from what I know that there are tools that are available through artificial intelligence to elicit strong emotional responses from people. And I think that those tools are being used to communicate certain ideals to the, an American public and elicit a strong emotional response in them. And I think that these tools are so advanced and so effective that it's hard to even know how exactly we're being manipulated uh, as an American public through the use of these tools. Because what's on the horizon is something that's very interesting, and it points back to this title of My Friend Voldemort. So on this topic, and in conclusion, I want to point to something indirect. There's this great book that I've read. It's called Zero to One, Notes on Startups, or how to build the future. And it's written by two gentlemen, two gentlemen who are very bright and two gentlemen who are heavily involved in American politics and are a hell of a lot smarter and more equipped with tools than the Democratic Party. On this topic of my friend Voldemort, I encourage you to understand the genius behind the people who wrote this book. 
because that's the challenge that lies ahead for the Democratic Party. And that's the challenge for American public discourse, because my friend Voldemort is smart. I look forward to having more conversations with you. If you want to learn more about this content stream, what I have going on, what I'm doing, the behind the scenes, the 20-year history, head on over to myfriendvoldemort.com. Sign up and join as a paying member. I sure would appreciate your support. I'd like to tell you more about this. Thanks for listening.